Hello and welcome to this week's Lancet podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, June the 8th. Our main focus this week will be on a research article looking at optimum treatments for children with acute leukaemia. Before that, I'm joined by my colleague, Rona MacDonald. Rona, we have a long editorial and also a world report about a very interesting issue, legal and illegal organs. That's right. A lot happening in the world of organ donation this past while. Last week, the EU published their policy on organ donation about what can happen within the EU to try and increase organ donation because of various laws throughout different EU countries. There's a wide variation in how many donors are available. Some countries, for example, Austria, Belgium and Spain, they've introduced a policy where you actually have to opt out. That is you know, opt not to donate your organs, whereas most other European countries, uh, you have to opt in. And because of this, there's a dire shortage of organs throughout Europe. And so they've come up with the proposal that's just been considered just now to have an EU-wide donor card, which is very interesting. And then we have a world report on China. And China's long been the subject of a lot of criticism for using the organs of executed prisoners, which it now has stopped. And it's introduced for the first time some new legislation around organ donation, which will hopefully cut down the awful exploitation in transplant tourism or organ trafficking as it's otherwise known and the leader concentrates quite a lot on that and what we mean is that people mostly desperately poor people in the world are sort of forced to sell parts of their body especially kidney because that's the easiest one to do to desperate people who need it and because of the lack of legal organ donations then because of the laws of economic supply and demand, you know, this goes on. And so there's a real argument out there to try and regulate and uh, legislate and make this organ trafficking or the sale of human organs legal. But on the other hand, you can see how morally repugnant it is because we're talking about parts of the human body here. And so at the moment, we're in a kind of stalemate, very inappropriate situation where we're not really doing anything that we should be doing. For example, we're not cracking down enough on the people involved in organ trafficking, so it's going further underground and it's increasing. And we're not doing enough to try and legally increase the amount of donors available. So an EU-wide donor card might be something, but we need to do a lot more as well. Reading the editorial for the first time, it's quite easy to be convinced by the case that what you need here is better regulation, because if something's going on anyway, and the practice is going on underground, why not just regulate it? You can see that argument, but we are talking about, you know, bits of human body here and it's the flow of organs is always going to be in the one direction it's always going to be the poor people who are you know forced into making these donations it's not going to be richer people and so the exploitation even though it is regulated is always going to go on however there is one country Iran where it does seem to work and it's kind of held up as the model but I think most people do find the whole idea morally suspect I mean do I guess if you're in the situation and you're desperate for an organ it's not there and you're rich enough, I guess, you know, you would want to do anything. Indeed, it's a fascinating argument or debate to be had. So I just, I would encourage everyone listening to read the long editorial this week and the World Report that's linked to it, which talks about, as Rona has just said, talks about China. Thanks very much, Rona. As mentioned earlier, our main feature this week is about a research article concerning optimum treatment for children with acute leukaemia. The main thrust of this article compares conventional bone marrow transplantation with a practice that has just started to be used recently, particularly in the United States, and that's umbilical cord blood donation for the treatment of acute leukaemia.
Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of the study, Professor John Wagner from the University of Minnesota in the United States, and I began by asking him to remind us non-hematologists about the importance of human leukocyte antigen typing, or HLA typing. In terms of the requirement for bone marrow transplantation in general, it is required that we have at least a partially matched donor and patient uh, before we can consider transplantation. What I mean by that is that HLA typing is looking at specific antigens on the surface of cells as on all of our tissues. And we know that it's important or critically important to have at least a partial match, if not a complete match. What we've learned in the setting of bone marrow transplantation is the more matched the bone marrow donor is, the better the outcome. And we are specifically typing for HLA A, B, C, and DR. Each one of those letters stands for an antigen. We inherit one set from mother and one set from father. And so when we talk about the level of typing, we're talking about a total of four from mother, a total of four from father, and that's what we call an eight out of eight match. That's the perfect match, and that's the gold standard by which we compare all other results. Now, interestingly, what we've learned over the past decade is that umbilical core blood, that is blood from a placenta after a baby's born, that blood is a bit naive and is not quite so immune reactive as bone marrow, and the HLA typing requirement is less. And so when we talk about the matching in the setting of core blood transplant, we're frequently talking about a 4 out of 6 or a 5 out of 6 or a 6 out of 6 matched graft. Now you say, well, how come with bone marrow you talk about 8 antigens and core blood you talk about 6? What we've learned is that you don't need to match for all the antigens that we do for bone marrow. And that's an important aspect of this study because the level of matching required for bone marrow transplantation is far greater than the level of matching required for umbilical cord blood. Thank you for that. Could you just comment as well about how common cord blood transplantation is? Because to lay people like myself, we just naturally think of bone marrow transplantation, not umbilical cord blood transplantation. Well, I think that you'd be quite surprised to find that umbilical cord blood transplantation has really remarkably increased over the past couple of years. And in fact, we estimate approximately 8,000 cord blood transplants have been performed to date, with the majority having been performed since the year 2000. However, that's in contrast to approximately 25,000 bone marrow transplants that have been taking place over the past two, two and a half decades. So clearly, the numbers of bone marrow transplants are far greater, but the experience is rapidly growing with cord blood. In the United States, core blood now equals the number of bone marrow transplants being performed. And it's quite similar in Japan and increasing in Europe as well. Thank you very much. And returning to your study in question, the one we're publishing in The Lancet this week, perhaps you could just run through a bit of the methodology and the results here. This is not a randomized trial. It's very much an observational study. And, and broadly, you're comparing the outcomes of children who received umbilical cord blood transplantation with another set of children who received, if you like, conventional bone marrow transplantation. Correct. So in this study, what we did is, in this retrospective analysis, we're comparing 503 patients receiving core blood to 282 patients receiving matched bone marrow. And as you say, it's an observational study because a prospective randomized trial does not yet exist. So in this study, what we did is we compared the results in core blood transplants, taking into consideration the level of matching that was obtained in these 503 patients. 
and we compared those results to those receiving what we call the gold standard 8 of 8 matched marrow. Now, in terms of you know, how the study was done, we did the study in collaboration between the International Bone Marrow Transplant Registry and the New York Blood Center, which is the world's largest core blood bank to date. And so by taking these two databases and merging the databases, we did this careful study in trying to evaluate really what was the potential impact of mismatched core blood in terms of five-year leukemia-free survival and comparing those results to 8 of 8 matched marrow, again, the gold standard. And what did you find? Well, quite interestingly, what we found is that even with the increased level of mismatch in the recipients of core blood, the results were quite comparable to what we saw with the gold standard of 8 of 8 allele matched marrow. This has tremendous implications. Now, there's a number of other important findings that we need to address as well. One is that we found that with every degree of mismatch, we found increasing risk of what we call transplant-related mortality. That means with core blood transplants that mismatching is important in terms of the risk of dying of a complication from the transplant procedure, most commonly infection. However, what we also found is that with every incremented mismatch, we found a correspondingly increased anti-leukemia effect. That means that the risk of relapse of leukemia became substantially lower with every level of mismatch. Would you expect to find that? Well, that was previously completely unknown. We didn't know that. In fact, uh, several years ago, it was argued the core blood might have a higher risk of relapse because of the naivete of the immune system. Perhaps it wouldn't have the same potent anti-leukemia effect that we observed with bone marrow, but in fact, we found that the anti-leukemia effect was even greater than bone marrow. So this was actually quite a surprise finding. What this translates into is an overall leukemia-free survival at five years it's quite superimposable with 8 out of 8 matched marrow. So, so this was actually quite an important finding. And this is of particular importance to those patients that can't even find donors in the marrow donor registries. As you may know, there are 11 million volunteer donors throughout the world that are willing to give up bone marrow for patients with children or adults with leukemia. However, this is in comparison to approximately 300,000 core blood units far smaller numbers of units of core blood being banked so far. And yet, we can find donors for many of our patients, particularly those of you know, racial and minority descent, and that's because of the fact that we can you know, use more mismatched transplants. With this outcome of showing that even with mismatched core blood, you have results that are quite comparable to matched bone marrow, I think this gives great hope for those patients that currently can't find donors. Professor Wagner, in logistical terms, what are the issues concerning, if you like, the banking of cord blood and the processes involved in getting hold of marrow donors? That's a, a critically important question. What we know now, it takes an average of two to four months to be able to obtain marrow from an adult volunteer donor. And why is that the case? Well, first off, you have to recall that we have to verify the HLA typing of that donor. That requires that the donor comes back to the doctor's office to uh, have blood sample obtained and the typing then done thereafter. If indeed the donor is a potential match, the donor then must have a physical examination and if physically fit, can then go on to become a bone marrow donor. But because of the multiple scheduling issues involved, it takes an average of two to four months to find that donor and to be able to collect the marrow sample. In contrast with core blood transplant, the core blood units are already typed, they're sitting in a bank, and they can be obtained at a moment's notice. All that's required is the confirmatory typing that takes one to two weeks. 
So clearly, one of the advantages of core blood is that it's immediately available. And in terms of the bottom line, if you like, or the implications of your observational study, there are implications there, aren't there, in terms of the diversity of the HLA testing availability? Yeah, there are several actually important uh, policy issues associated with this study. The first and perhaps most important is that we can find donors now for the majority of our patients. As I previously noted, those of racial and ethnic minorities frequently cannot find a donor. And in fact, in the United States, for African Americans, it typically is about 20% can find a partially matched donor in the marrow donor registries. They're by far the most challenging. However, what this says to us is that we need to increase uh, the diversity of the HLA pool within the core blood banks. And this is something that in the United States has already been initiated. And in fact, this past year, the United States government released funds for, of approximately $100 million for augmenting the size of the core blood registry. In addition, I think that what this tells us is that we need to focus on a few issues with core blood banking. What we do know is that cell dose, that is the number of cells in a core blood unit, uh, the size of the unit that's collected has tremendous implications in the outcome of the transplant procedure. And although not discussed during this interview, we know that the numbers of cells in the core blood unit have a particularly profound effect on how quickly the bone marrow recovers after transplantation as well as the risk of side effects such as infection. So clearly what we need to do is bank not only a larger number of units to increase the diversity of the population in the bank, but we also need to increase the size of the units so that we can improve upon the overall outcome. What's next for research in this area? Are we going to get a randomized trial? Well, I think that uh, a randomized trial is certainly needed. However, it is going to be logistically very difficult to accomplish. The reason being is that, again, we cannot find bone marrow donors that are matched for the majority of our patients. And so, therefore, performing such a randomized trial is going to be challenging. So what we could do, however, is that we could initiate a trial where we then um, select out only those patients that do happen to have a matched marrow donor and also happen to have a suitable core blood donor. And those patients could be randomized, but it would probably take four or five years in the pediatric age group to be able to complete such a study. So it's not a small ordeal for us to be able to figure out how to do this in a time-efficient manner. But nonetheless, that would be the the, the study that would be able to prove once and for all whether these findings do hold up and this only needs to be entertained. Professor Wagner, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. That was Professor John Wagner from the University of Minnesota. And links to this important article is a comment by authors from Hôpital Saint-Louis in Paris. They focus particularly on the time spent to find a donor either from bone marrow or from umbilical cord blood and propose a new algorithm to help the search for the right donor. Well, that concludes this week's podcast. Thanks to Rona MacDonald, John Wagner and Richard Lane saying goodbye. See you next week.